0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast.
1: McMaster University, great university here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, McMaster researchers are trying to predict premature birth and prevent it, reads the uh, headline of the Hamilton Spectator. Um, The importance of identifying pregnant women most at risk is evident in a second study looking at potential serious health effects of being born too early. It will determine if extremely Low birth weight preemies age faster as adults. This is interesting. Both studies are among uh, 25 in Canada, receiving uh, a total of $1.85 million from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research to spend a year finding ways to improve health outcomes for babies and moms. And uh, joining us on the line to talk about it is uh, Dr. Sarah McDonald, uh, high-risk obstetrician at Hamilton Health Sciences and professor of obstetrics and gynecology at McMaster. Dr. McDonald, welcome to the program. Nice to have you here.
2: Thanks very much for having me, Jamie.
1: McMaster um, uh, Medical Center, or or as it used to be called in the old days, Hamilton Health Sciences, um, you guys were famous uh, for taking care of uh, some of the lowest birth weight babies uh, around um, there's a long history of pulling preemies through and um, in, into uh, positive outcomes at uh, McMaster. This is a very interesting study, um, and and I think primarily because a lot of people don't understand that uh, while it's possible with technology and advancements in treatment to pull preemies through, um, they they often have deficits after the fact. Isn't that right?
2: Certainly, the earlier the baby is born, the higher the chance of having deficits, as you mentioned, Jamie. Um, and so the goal is uh, to try to prevent it. Um, and if we can't prevent it altogether, then at least predict whom we might target care to differently.
1: So how would we how would if if we found the mechanism for identifying uh, a likely, uh, you know, a premature labor, how, how would we how would we prevent it? What would we be doing to, to prevent it?
2: Well, there's some really exciting new treatments um, and uh, some that have sort of had a, a rebirth, if you will, and one of them is called progesterone. It's a medication that can be uh, taken uh, by women who are at risk of preterm birth, and it cuts in half the odds of having a baby born too early. And so it's very effective for women who had a history of spontaneous preterm birth in the past.
1: Is the, um, the number of uh... Uh, preterm births gone up uh, in the last, I don't know, 20 years. Can you give me some numbers on that or, or a rough idea?
2: Sure. In There there were increases. Um, fortunately, things seem to be leveling off now, not just in Canada, but in a number of other countries, including the U.S. Um, fortunately, Canada's rate is lower than the United States, but we have some ways to go. Um, there are some countries that have even lower rates than Canada and that we'd like to aim for.
1: And what what are the reasons uh, typically that those numbers would have increased? Is it just is it just skewed by by the number of people who are pregnant, kind of thing, or are there other reasons why the numbers might have increased?
2: Uh, part of it has to do with the fact that um, as women delay childbearing, um, older mothers have a higher chance of preterm birth, but also uh, women who are a little bit more shall we say mature also um, might seek. Reproductive care with infertility treatments, right? And if you have multiple births, i.e., twins or triplets, hopefully no more than that um, at once. That those babies for sure at increased risk of preterm birth. So there are some um, factors like like fertility treatments and um, older, like I like to say, wiser mums, um, uh, maternal age playing into it. But there are some other factors as well. So we know that uh, if mothers smoke. Um, or if they have uh, a body weight that's too low or too high before pregnancy, those are other factors that can influence their risk of preterm birth. If they have other medical conditions, uh, medical illnesses, those can all impact their risk.
1: Right. Okay. So tell, tell us about this study. Uh, give, give us the nuts and bolts of, of uh, how you're going to approach this uh, research and, um, and, again, what you may, maybe think the outcomes will be and, and, and what you hope you'll find out.
2: So we're going to look at the population of Ontario, which is important for our mothers in Hamilton, because this data should apply directly to them. And we're going to look at um, all babies who are born early and factors in the mother's medical history and during the pregnancy history that might might go into some algorithms to predict which women are at increased risk of preterm birth. And so we're excited about that because we hope then, once we have the study's results, to be able to um, provide an algorithm to care providers that would help them to target which women are at, at higher risk.
1: All right. And, and how long will this uh, study go on for?
2: It'll take about a year or two.
1: Okay. That's not too long in, in research terms, is it?
2: It's not. We'd better get going. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the longer you talk on the phone to media people, the less time you're, you know, looking under the mic under the microscope. Um, I appreciate
2: the chance to get the word out to mothers about ways of prevention, Jamie. So I'm happy to chat.
1: Yeah, no, you're welcome. Uh, you're welcome anytime. And, um, and you know, maybe you should come on uh, the Dr. Danielle show with us too on uh, CHML uh, Saturday mornings at ten, and and be a guest on on that pro- uh, program. Your uh, your colleague, Dr. Brian Van leashout uh, has already been a guest on that show, so you'd be welcome to come on anytime.
2: Great, thanks so much,
1: Doctor Sarah McDonald. Thank you so much for this. Appreciate it. Have a great day. You too, my pleasure. Take care. Bye bye.
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.
1: More and more of us are suffering with chronic mental stress uh, in the workplace. Uh, you know, earlier in the program we waxed on about the seer situation and how the bankruptcy laws in this country allow. Uh, companies to just, uh, fold up and leave you in the lurch. Uh, you know, again, we, you can jump in on that one again if you want. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. But we're gonna, we're gonna kind of, um, stay on the employment band a bit, but change it up a little. A lawsuit filed on behalf of two injured workers groups and an Ottawa woman are fighting for compensation for Ontario workers that suffer from chronic mental stress, uh, due to work. Uh, the suit was filed, uh, last week. Um, uh, the Ottawa woman who says she was uh, sexually harassed when she worked for the city uh, in her statement of claim. Uh, Marjorie Wardle says she suffered chronic mental stress as a result of sexualized photos posted at her workplace as well as being shunned by coworkers uh, and an incident in which she was swarmed by people and shouted obscenities at her. That is not uh, – uh, th- that's terrible to hear. Um Uh, The lawsuit targets the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board and the government of Ontario, among others. None of the claims have been proven in court. Um, Ontario's Workplace Safety and Insurance Law allows for compensation to be given in mental illness claims that stem from a sudden or traumatic event, but excludes chronic mental stress that builds up over time, um, such as in cases of ongoing harassment. But uh, harassment aside – you know, there's. I'm sure there's other examples of things that cause chronic stress in the workplace. And maybe you could give those to me. Maybe you're in one of those situations or you know somebody that is or star nine nine hundred. the telephone numbers. You can email me to jwest at westpromedia.com. And uh, let's go to uh, uh, our expert guest, Howard Levitt, uh, employment lawyer in Toronto. Howard, thanks for the time today. Good to have you on.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Um, so you heard my my ramble and my my preamble there. Um, obviously uh, this this stands out as a sore thumb example of of, of mental stress in the workplace, being sexually harassed. That's of that's the brass ring of, of mental stress in the workplace, right?
3: It, it, well, it's certainly one of them. But one mm-hmm. you think you could go to the Human Rights Code for that. You might profile a civil claim for that if, if you're excluded from a WSIB claim. So there are other remedies. It's a little bit like we were talking about Sears earlier. Yeah. In the Sears case, it's a matter of do you continue to pay pensioners money you don't have anymore and let the whole company chain go bankrupt and cost everybody their jobs? It's a little bit like that insofar as this. Workers compensation in Ontario is dramatically underfunded. Every taxpayer owes a massive debt to WSIB because they've paid out far more than they have. And, And then they collect on premiums every year. So at the end of the day, does the system go under, or do we add a whole new category of claims that aren't there now, or let people have other ability to recover those claims, such as in the case you gave, the example of the sexual harassment, a human rights case,
0: Mm-hmm. Where,
3: what, where the employer itself will be paying out the money rather than rather than the government, the workers' compensation.
1: What, what would it take to reform uh, workers' compensation, to, to 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 bring it up to snuff uh, and and... And, and get it funded properly at, at this point. Like, we're, we're always so late to the table with stuff. It's always after the fact that we're going in and going, wow, we, wow what a disaster this is. Uh, You know, who knew?
3: Well, there's billions of dollars and have been for even more than a decade. No a kidding. Of decades of unfunded liability. So either you raise taxes or you put higher premiums on employers that are in deep enough trouble right now, especially with Wynn's new alleged uh, proposed legislation which are, I, a lot of my clients are saying I'm leaving the province or I'm automating or I'm certainly not going to be hiring any low-end low-paid workers anymore I'm be laying off many of the ones we have cuz I can't I can afford them at 1140 I can't afford them at $15 or I'm shutting down my nursing home or whatever the case may be so there's that already that's disincenting employers in Ontario mm-hmm. easier unionization access so important why do we want to be in ontario if we could be somewhere else and then you say well let's add a lot of a lot because it would take a lot of workers compensation premium just to get up to snuff right now and then let's add all the mental stress claims that people are going to start filing and understand how difficult it is to prove or disprove mental stress i'm not saying this isn't a good lawsuit on its merits that there should be an inherent distinction between physical and mental disability caused by the workplace Obviously, it's probably a very good argument under the charter. In this case, may well be successful, but the system can't afford it.
1: Right, Howard Levitt's an employment lawyer, is on the line with me. And and Howard, um, let let's let's delve a little bit into that that whole chronic mental stress thing and in, in claims against employers. Um, in that you you hear this every single day. What what do those look like? I mean, we given the sexual harassment example. So, what are some other examples of what people uh, are are calling chronic mental stress or mental stress that they're seeking uh, filing claim uh, on against an employer?
3: Well, they often talk about job stress. Yeah, for example, just the stress of the job itself, or the stress of a particularly abusive, in their view, boss. Right. Or and this is always excluded from any potential claim: the stress of being disciplined, the stress of being performance managed as an employer, as an employer's counsel which I often act as, you see, you build up a case against an employee, next thing you know they go off on sick leave, claiming mm. they're stressed because they know if they don't do that, they're about to be terminated.
1: Right, right.
3: Or they, or they claim there's so much stress they need more vacation time, so they take it in the form of longer weekends, in the summertime particularly, but they claim they do it because they, they're just too stressed to come to work. So there's a lot of obviously false claims and disproving them is increasingly difficult because now the Wynn government has said you can't ask for medical notes for the first 10 days of absenteeism every year. Well, if you can't ask for medical notes, how can you possibly prove that a claim is bogus?
1: Yeah, that is welcoming abuse, isn't it, really?
3: It's inviting it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know... It's
3: facilitating it.
1: Yeah. And, it's, and, and, and you know, when people go off on... on uh, Stress leave, as you – the example you used was somebody who knows they're about to be shown the gate, and they, they play the stress leave card, and they go out. That puts pressure on insurance companies because it's insurance companies that pay the S, uh, short-term disability and then long-term disability if well, the employee plays that game, the right?
3: The LTD, yes. Uh, STD is usually the employer. Oh, okay. Although there sometimes are insurance companies, although that's become so expensive, insurance companies are essentially sidestepping that and saying we don't, we want, we don't want to fund STD anymore. So the employer's funding STD, and you know when there's abuse, and your coworkers know when there's abuse. And they say, well, boy, I know that X, Y, and Z isn't really sick tomorrow. I'm saying tomorrow because it's Friday before the weekend or Monday. And why are they getting away with it? Well, you know, I'd rather have a day off too. So let me try the same game. And now, when you can't even ask for medical notes,
1: well, how how per, how pervasive is this this Howard in in our workplaces in in general? From the thirty thousand foot level, you, you know, we 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 constantly hear that everybody hates their boss, everybody hates their job. Maybe this has been going on for decades. I don't know. I I was fortunate enough to working a, in a business that I enjoyed and, and and I feel like I've never had to work for a living to be honest with you, but a lot of people aren't in that boat. Is no, it that I'm big a problem?
3: Not is you and most people are not. Most people are bored by their jobs. Okay and, and, and interestingly enough, the government workers who are the best paid, best benefits, best pension, most job security, hate their jobs the most and take the most days off for sickness. No kidding. Because they get away with it. Although now, with the, again the win government's plans on no more doctors' notes for the first ten days, it's going to be just as easy for private sector workers in Ontario to get away with it.
1: So let's do a little bit of a reality check way, too. From
3: thirty thousand feet up, it's a huge problem for companies.
1: Okay. Yeah, I would imagine. I would. I would imagine that it is. It's. It's obviously a, a challenge for us as a working society to be able to strike a balance. I, I guess what I'm wondering is was there ever a harmonious balance between labor and employers or you know, at any time historically in our country or in our province, well, did that ever exist?
3: Well I've only been practicing law, employment law for thirty nine years, so I can't really speak before that.
1: No, but <laughs> oh, that's, that's a good a, run. No, I, I mean I don't
3: think there ever has been a time. And you talk about um the, the for example the Hamilton Stelco strike of '48, where rail cars are being overturned. Yeah. Rocks are being thrown through windows of people who were working through the strike, then called scabs. Other called replacement workers, depending on what side you're on. But was there ever a time of harmony? No, the big labor union wars were, were rife and, and vicious. So, no, there's never been a time of harmony. Although I must say, I think that sick leave, false sick leave claims, have, gone, have had a huge upturn in the last decade.
1: Hmm. Um, when it comes to, Howard, uh, individuals uh, deciding to, uh, you know, file claim on their own, hire a lawyer, everybody thinks it's easy, right? I'll just get a lawyer and I'll just go out there and I'll make them pay and all that stuff. That, that is not how it works. Like, people have no idea. And, I mean, you certainly do. You're a lawyer. Uh, have no idea what they're getting into when they go to seek to go down that road. It is Complex and complicated, is it not?
3: It is, and some lawyers don't really know what they're doing, or give bad advice, or yeah. want to build up the clock and build up their fees, and and encourage ridiculous um, amount of litigation when the case should be settled quickly and easily. In some cases can't be, and some c- times you need to file a claim. But I'm saying you don't know what you're getting into. When, unless you really know the lawyer's background, because some lawyers are encouraging litigation fr- frivolously, and at the end of the day, who suffers? The employee, because they get the employer's back up. The employee's acted badly, and they're for the employer, it's not their money. Uh, if it's, if it's more, not a small business, it's not their money, the, the, the manager making the decision, so they're prepared to fight that employee to prove their point.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting for sure. Howard Levitt, employment lawyer in Toronto. Thanks very much for for the time this afternoon. I appreciate the insight. Well,
3: thanks
0: for having me.
1: Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Nine zero five six four five three two two one star nine nine hundred. Hey, Tony. Thanks for calling the program. Go ahead.
0: Well, there's two points that I wish to put uh, on the compensation. Uh, I used to work for Stelco, and uh, when what used to happen, Stelco paid their uh, compensation, and then. Uh, when they had their uh, health care, uh, uh, hospital care in in the shops, they they were reimbursed. But the company actually pay, uh, gave money to uh, WSIB, and then WSIB, in turn, administered it. Okay. Uh, one of the other things that a lot of people don't realize, or what is it you're talking about, stress. Mm-hmm. The workforce has been cut and cut and cut and cut, where they used to have four people, three people doing a job. Now they've cut it back and say, okay, there's only two of you left, so you have to pick up the slack. So that person is getting more. And I was reading in the paper there the other day that there there, there's so many people that are on so much stress. The boss is saying, well, this is how much I want done. Well, it's going to take me 60 hours to do that in, in a week. I said, well, you'll just have to do it, and that's all there is to it. You have to give up your home, home life and your family life and yep. and all the rest of that.
1: That's real. I, I, you know, I believe that. That's happening. That's You know, it's part of being connected with uh, with cell phones and such, a- absolutely, and the Internet. That's that's brought that forward. No question about it, Tony. A couple of really good points there. All right. Appreciate the call. You have a great day.
0: All right. Thank you, then. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
1: There is some, some wisdom floating about by the National Bureau of Economic Research suggesting that innovations in leisure, such as video games – is that leisure? I guess it is – are taking men out of the workforce. Call of Duty, Super Mario, removing people from the workforce. Theo Sellis is with us, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. Theo, can this be possible that Super Mario is keeping young people from getting out there and getting going? <laughs> <laughs> Another obstacle that fellow provides,
4: but as though there, as though there aren't enough, right? I know. Well, look. A um, couple of things about this is that um, first of all, you have to be careful about cause and effect. So, uh, are these young people, and increasingly, by the way, that's women as well. Uh, stereotypically, we think of the uh, young guy in the parents' basement, but um, you know, research is showing that about fifty percent of gamers are now women. So that uh, females are catching up. You gotta be cause and effect, so the question is um, are there jobs out there that these people can get? Uh, are they considered to be good enough jobs for these people to get so is it an absence of jobs that's leading to people to come home uh, because they're having a hard time being independent and then because they don't have employment, they're filling up their time playing video games um, but then, of course, the more time they play video games, the less likely they are going to be searching for jobs so uh, it's kind of a circular thing, as opposed to um, just uh, it's the video games that's keeping people from working.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, I, I I gotta say my my instincts, and I'm not I'm not an expert like you are, but I'll I'll tell you my instincts are that you know people go out there, maybe a little bit about some of the things we've been talking about on the show today. They go out, they're looking for work. They don't they can't find the right job, the good job, whatever that is according to their definition. Uh, they go back and, like all human beings, they want something to soothe them, and and I think things like video games are a soother. There's something to uh, to distract you a bit from that maybe the stress and anxiety of of looking for work, um, and and the worry of will I ever find work, and and will I ever you know make a good living, etc. Is that possible?
4: Yeah, uh, you know, a couple of things about that is, um, you know, one. You're right. So uh, a lot of these young people are not finding the kind of jobs that they wanted. Uh, they want, and part of that is the expectation that look, uh, if I go to university, if I go to college, then I should be able to get a better career because that's what you know. So it's always been told me. I, you know, yeah, that's always I,
1: I, been the promise.
4: That's that's been the promise. And so you know, I, I did. I went out and I and I went beyond high school and I went got myself a degree or diploma. And then it turns out that the best I could do is working full time at the place so I was just working part time at in order to support my university, uh, efforts. So it's like, well, that's a drag. So now, do I, you know, do I go back to that life or do I spend time comforting myself playing video games? And the more I play video games, again, the less likely I am to be out there pounding the pavement. But you raise the other point, the link between video games and, and mental health. There, for certain, is a correlation between more and more video gaming and mental health issues like anxiety and depression. And again, that's not a cause and effect thing. It's hard to say which. Where Where does that start?
1: So, which came first? You may, well, if where, you're if you're anxious and depressed, do you go to the video games? It's not necessarily the video games causing you to be depressed and anxious.
4: Well, right, because let's suppose you have social anxiety, right? So yeah. it's hard for you to speak with people. It's hard for you to have confidence. Relationships are kind of challenging for you. Well, you can avoid that, and you can be in this other world where you don't really have to deal with people directly, and that's very soothing, and it kind of gives you a relief from the anxiety that you feel when you go out there and you have to actually talk with people. Um, So that helps you feel better, but then, you know, when you try to get out there, you have lost even more the old social skills that you had, you've lost even more confidence that you have, so you're less likely to go out there and face those fears and develop some social skills that reduce your anxiety. And it's the same thing with depression. You know, people who are depressed, well, you know, they oftentimes don't have a lot of energy and they tend to isolate. Well, what's a great thing to do, quote-unquote, great thing to do when you're isolated? Well, you can play video games because you don't have to really connect with people. At the same time, that doesn't help you face your depression, and in the back of your mind, you know, you're kind of wasting your life, which leads you to feel worse. Which leads to which, draw more, which leads to play more video games.
1: Yeah, um, I guess the the video games are are just a just a sign of a of a of a larger symptom, which is I, I and this is delving into another another area. But you're an expert; we've got you on the line, so I'm I'm going to ask you the question: the the idea that you know young people aren't getting started as quickly. As they did a couple of generations ago, does that does that hold water? Is that what we're seeing? Is there sort of a um, a delay in maturity, if you will, uh, and des- delay in desire to get going? I mean, when and, and it's always easy to say, you know, back in the days, my generation was blah blah blah, but we really were motivated to get out of the house. We hadn't, and maybe it's because we didn't have these things, you know, we didn't have a screen in in our hands and so on and so forth. But have people sort of slowed down on getting going?
4: well that that's first of all, you make a good point. we didn't have those things in our hands which would maybe delay our development. Um, I don't have a sense from young people that they necessarily uh, want to spend the rest of their life living in their parents' homes. I get the sense more that they have a, a feeling like they need to or they have to, that they aren't capable or not able to be financially independent. Without having that, yeah, I think
1: boost. I think a lot of them would like their parents to simply move out and leave them with the house and, and <laughs> the money, parents. maybe.
4: I've had parents only <laughs> be able to get rid of their kids by actually selling the house up from <laughs> of them, so okay. it works that it works that okay. way as well. Then look at one of the big promises, like you know, the idea is that we we we've always well here. There's been this idea, and, and it's not a worldwide thing that we have to have kids move out of the house. I mean, lots of societies have these, you know, multi-generational homes, and that's just considered the thing, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, more traditionally here, it's been this idea that we raise our kids with the idea of them being independent. We're helping them be independent, and so when they get to the point of being independent, they go out. Well, you know, let's just look at a little bit of the cost of living now, moving out and having your own place. Now, compared to, say, 20 years ago, let's suppose you want to stay in the GTA. And let's suppose your dream was you always wanted to save and stay with your parents long enough to be able to put down a down payment on a home well, you're going to be staying with your parents now until you're about 70 before you're able to own a homeowner right. kind of thing, right? So there are some social changes that are making it more difficult for uh, younger people to get out there and do their own thing. Cause, you know, there's still that logic. Look, why do I, Why would I waste my money on an apartment? Let's put down some money towards a down payment, towards our future, and then we can maybe get
1: married. And So I think the dream is still there. I just think... That's delayed because of circumstances. But conversely, I've also heard about a trend and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that some young people or more young people are starting to, uh, in in their mindset, get away from the idea of having the big house and the two cars and the pool and all of that. And they're saying, no, no, we want experiences. We want to live in smaller spaces. We're happy to live in, in smaller spaces and have fewer material things if we can go out in the world and maybe travel more, see more things or meet different cultures that kind of thing.
4: I think that's a very helpful, helpful and healthy adaptation to circumstance as well if you can't have it then you might as well make yourself and convince yourself that you should
1: be happier without it. Yeah, they they might be smarter than we think. I mean, in, in in other countries, you you know this. They don't covet the material goods in the in the big house the way that we do uh, uh, here. They they covet time. They cover uh, covet quality of life and social socializing with family and friends.
4: Yes, they do. And also, it's partly because they may not have had the same opportunities as we had to amass what they would consider to be obscene uh, amounts of wealth. Yeah. But you but you are raised the other point was, okay, so let's suppose you don't have or can't have as much, because the dream was always, the idea was always you're supposed to do better than your parents somehow, whatever that means, but financially, you know, that was, you know, parents have always wanted to I've heard that from parents a long, long time. It's my kids to be able to do better than me. Sure. Sort of like push it forward, right? Yep. So let's suppose that opportunity is not there, and you raise the question of, well, you know, maybe we have to change our valuing from material things to things like community to relationships to experience. Now we're back to this whole video game thing and how that's interfering with those. And that, you know, brings up this whole, um, you know, new phenomena of video game addiction, so you know when you're addicted uh, because well, you should know when you're addicted because you aren't enjoying experience. You aren't enjoying relationships. You've lost connection with community. So now it's become not just a, a fun thing, and a diversion. Now it's become the center of your life.
1: And is that? And I'm assuming that extends to social media. Have We coined the phrase social media addiction, Facebook addiction, uh, Instagram addiction, uh, all of that stuff, because everywhere I go, uh i see people sitting in in restaurants across a table from each other just banging away on their on their screens and not even looking at each other
4: well of course it is and then and then of course you know we but we are wiring our kids into that by giving you know kids two three four devices so we're plugging them into this sort of wireless network that's attached to their neurology and then Uh, we end up being surprised that they spend more and more time feeling unhappy or having issues with diets or sleep problems or depression or, you know, lack of social skills uh, because all they've been doing is
1: getting that sort of dopamine kind of reward through online uh, interaction. I have a funny feeling, Theo, that... um you're never going to run out of business and that there are there's going to be a massive need for a lot of Theoceluses in the next uh, 10 to 20 years to deal with a lot of this stuff that's just my my feeling on it it's a very kind of a depressing thought in a positive way. Well, not for you, because you'll have that big house and three cars that we talked about and and all the vacations and everything, so it's okay. That my son can live in, so there
0: it'll
1: you, work out. There you go. Theo Sellis, a registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. Uh, uh, you can contact him at living1010 at hotmail.com. Thanks so much for this. Appreciate it.
0: All right. Take care, Jay. Take
1: care. Bye-bye. Theo Sellis, he's a smart dude. He really is. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3
2: on AM 900 CHML.